Well, we come to a passage in uh, 1 John tonight that uh, is challenging and also very encouraging. And, and so a passage that does require us to approach it, asking God to search our hearts. And so as I welcome you tonight, thank you for joining us on this uh, live stream as we seek to just understand this uh, letter that John wrote so many years ago. So let's pray together and I'm going to ask uh, the Lord to search all our hearts and teach us his word. Lord, we thank you for the, the standard that you give us, uh, the measure of scripture that uh, in another sense we can consider to be like a mirror as we look, as we examine, as your spirit works, Lord, that you would help us to see how we stand, how we measure up, and Lord, that which is said uh, to examine our lives and and asking that very thing tonight, that your Holy Spirit would uh, help us and, and even make known to us, convicting us of anything that is out of sync uh, as far as this passage goes and in comparison to our own lives. And so we do look to you as the Almighty Lord God. Uh, you are one who knows all things, confessing, Lord, that there's nothing that we can hide from you, also knowing that you are a God of grace and mercy, and even in the previous study, knowing that you have provided our Lord Jesus Christ as the advocate, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins. And so committing this time to you, praying for each of us, Lord, in our own particular situations of need, and pray that you would lead us in our walk with you and also in our worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, and continuing in that chapter, we're going to start tonight at the third verse, and uh, looking at just those few verses from verse 3 down to verse 6, and uh, uh, follow in your Bible as I just read these verses to us. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. A very practical passage tonight. And uh, just trusting as we consider it that there would be a great value of either the challenge or on the other hand, great affirmation of assurance that we can receive uh, from the Word of God. I thought I'd begin by introducing this passage tonight, thinking back many, many years. Uh, one of my friends uh, back in those days, a very sad story, but, but he thought, and, and the emphasis of, of, of the sentence is on him thinking. He thought, he thought his wife loved him. Only to discover just one day out of the blue, and of course with great shock and, and horror, that she was having an affair. So the point I'm really wanting to make in this introduction tonight is thinking, thinking you know something is very different from really knowing something. What people think to be true 
is very different from what they really know to be true. And just thinking about young people, there are those at university and school at the moment, there are many of them even in our church writing exams. Uh, One of them may go into an exam thinking they know their work, only to discover ending up quite surprised to receive a failing mark. On the other hand, there may be others who enter the exam who really know their work. The outcome will be far more pleasant, discovering not only a pass but even a distinction. So I want us to think about that principle as we, as we come to this passage tonight. You see, in the same way, we need to recognize that there are those, many people, who think that they know God. It's quite a challenging statement, even a challenging thought. There are those who think they know God, but they may be surprised. Jesus speaks about on that day in Matthew chapter 7, where many will say to him, Lord, Lord, we know the passage so well. And he will say to them, I never knew you. So they lived their lives believing, but thinking, thinking they were safe from the wrath of God, thinking they would be accepted by God, thinking that their sins were forgiving, forgiven and all was well. Only to discover the shock that they did not really know God and the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think on the other hand, and we need to state the positive as well, there are others, and I hope it would be all of us, who really know God. Having come through this passage already, looking to Jesus, understanding Him to be our advocate, uh, experiencing the blessing of Him being that one who appeases the wrath of God, being the propitiation for our sins and and progressing in this uh, steady and, and, and even a confident assurance not to be disappointed on that day when we stand before the Lord, either when He comes for us or when He calls for us. And so we do need to think about this passage tonight. It's a challenging passage in this regard. And we do need to personalize it. I do need to personalize it. What about me? Uh, do, do I think I know God or do I really know God? Is it possible to, to answer that question? And so I want to begin tonight, and I don't have an assistant, so I hope my clicker is going to be working. My very first point tonight is I want us to think about how do people think they know God? The, the, the deception. What, how can we identify some of the, uh, the deception that takes place leading people, leading many people to be in a place uh, where, where, where they really are convinced that they know God, but in reality don't know God? I want to go back, and I remember back in my school days, uh, an experiment that we did in biology on uh, taste. We were doing something about the human uh, body in in the study, and I remember the teacher showing us this, which was very interesting and 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 funny to some degree. And and I discovered something uh, then that that uh, I wonder, I'm sure you know as well, that the reality that the tongue has different areas of taste and sensation. So somehow this tongue of ours is chopped up into different areas. And, and, and it perceives different tastes in different places. 
So if I remember correctly, the experiment we did back in biology was that if uh, the teacher placed a, a bit of raw potato on a certain place on, on the tongue, a certain area, it didn't taste like raw potato, it tasted like apple. You see, the tongue misled the reality. And, and so the, again, again this, this principle, you, you may think you're eating an apple because of the place that the piece of potato was put on, but in reality you're eating raw potato. So the conclusion, and this is my point, the conclusion you reach is based on perception and not on real fact. So thinking you know something, anything, has its foundation in subjective perception rather than objective facts. Very, very important distinction. This distinction between the subjective and the objective. So the lesson that, that, that uh, uh, people focused on, on, on personal perception or, or their subjective experience is that it's possible to be wrong. It's very possible to be wrong, not only confusing apples and potatoes. I mean, that's funny and, and, and we can trick people and, and it's very interesting to learn about that. But it is possible to reach the wrong conclusion about really knowing God. You see, over the centuries, subjective perception has misled many men and women. Instead of them focusing on the objective facts that are revealed to us, and we're going to see something of that in our passage tonight, many have been mistaken and propping up their faith, propping up their beliefs on the basis of subjective experience rather than uh, the objectivity that they ought to be looking at. So the important question we need to consider, in what way is it possible to be confused uh, about knowing God using personal perception, and I'm going to look at some of these errors in a minute, in what way is it possible to, to be confused about this uh, using personal perception rather than uh, objective facts? And I have, I have three uh, that I'm going to touch on, and, and there are more, no doubt, but certainly three that I'm going to be looking on. And the first one is that of intellectualism. And as I read through my notes uh, in preparation tonight, I thought, well, we could have used a different heading there. And the other heading that we could use is full heads, cramming the head full of knowledge. So to go back just in terms of the, uh, the, 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 the issue of intellectualism, and we go back as into the, the, the classical Greek era, there was almost unlimited confidence in human reason, the ability of the mind. Something, yes, very similar even emerged in Europe in the following, uh, in, in the 18th uh, century. And, and the point is that they believed that accurate knowledge of all things, and, and, and the important thing is accurate knowledge. Accurate knowledge of all things, including God, was attainable simply through the mind. They believed they could arrive at knowing God by the mere process of, of reasoning, rational thinking. This approach can be a danger even today, especially amongst people who get caught up in just the accumulation of 
uh, knowledge and, and even just the accumulation of, of doctrinal knowledge. And, and, and I think you all know that I'm uh, uh, in favor of uh, doctrine and, and learning doctrine and understanding all that we have uh, revealed to us in doctrine. But, but the knowledge of God cannot simply be uh, uh, likened or be synonymous to the amount of knowledge I have about God. Many people can become so fascinated by complex theological ideas, believing that what they put in their mind equates to knowing God. So they have full minds, full minds. Even in evangelical circles, the criterion for knowing God is a focus on theological correctness alone. And we're going to get to that because it does have a place, but really saying that nothing else is important. And so there's the possibility of the subjective perception, since I know so much about theology, since I know so much rationally, that I can say that I know God. The second one, <coughs> excuse me, is mysticism. And again, just to use some common everyday language, I thought of mysticism can be described as a gooey gut. You know, when you get those gooey feelings in your stomach because something's happening and you think because you have gooey feelings in your stomach, this must be equated to some kind of connectedness with God. Now, again, we go back in history, we go back to the Greeks, the Hellenistic period, and we see that there were some influences that came in from the eastern part of the world, bringing into uh, to, to the Greek world concepts from the east. And so... In some people's lives, they, 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 they recognized that the mind in and of itself was not enough. It did not satisfy. It. And, so, and so therefore it was important to stimulate the senses. And so what they did, the mystery religions, and their promise, the promise of the mystery religion was that there would be an emotional union with God induced, or perhaps we could say brought about by different uh, phenomena like lightning or, or music or, or the burning of incense or following a certain liturgy or, or routine. And that kind of thing became popular. Not only then. Very interesting that it's very common in our approach today. Somebody's experience and knowledge of God is equipped to perception through the senses. So entering a particular situation where, again, let me go back to my statement of experiencing a gooey gut and thinking that mere emotion, a mere stirring of the senses, is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the, the effect of today, in some churches, a very deliberate uh, attempt to, to, to stir people in terms of the emotion by using lights or uh, the manipulation of, of music and, and smell and, and, and even the way the program is organized uh, gives, gives those participating, those congregants, the perception that they must be experiencing God, leaving there thinking, thinking, well, I must know God because tonight I had a gooey gut. They did this kind of thing centuries ago, and as I say, we often see this happening today. We can uh, 
use other terminology. It is a focus on mere sentimentalism or emotional, emotionalism by attributing the manipulation of the senses wrongly. And uh, it's, it's an incorrect thing to the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, there is another error of uh, this subjective perception where, where, where uh, people are led down a path uh, thinking that they know God and don't know God. I know I certainly was guilty of this for, for many years and, and many of us living in the Western world uh, probably would be identified with this. And I've called it culturalism. Or again, just to use some uh, common language, I thought maybe we could say the, the, this comes about through sticky labels. Sticky labels. And what I mean by that is many professing Christians think it is their perception that they had been enlightened uh, with uh, a true knowledge of God. And I've missed the, I'm not used to doing this. I know I've caught it up. Uh, they believe they've, uh, have this knowledge of God simply because of the experience that they have in terms of, of culture, in terms of where they come from and, and, and what their context is. And, and, and John here challenges the claim of the Gnostics in the particular context of, of 1 John, uh, not by denying the fact that one uh, can know God, of course we can know God, but by insisting instead that there are certain objective tests that must be applied. And so culturally, simply because I'm not a Jew or you're not a Muslim and you're in the Western world, uh, that doesn't automatically make you a Christian and it doesn't automatically uh, enable you to, to, to definitely and be assured uh, of, of your relationship in knowing God. So John challenges this claim and he says, no, 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 perceptions, perceptions are inaccurate. There, there's a place for perception, there's a place for experience, but, but, but subjective experience cannot lead the way. Objective tests must be applied. And this is where we turn to our passage, and if you look at verse 4, the man who says, I know him, okay, so that we, we all want to be in that position where we know him, but... So there's a qualifier here. But does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So John is not denying the value of knowledge. Knowledge is so important, especially theological knowledge and truth that has been revealed to us in the Bible. He's not denying that there's value in worship, in the application of music, and, and even being still and silent before God, and, 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 and having a, a liturgy that, that is full of meaning. But, but those things in and of themselves, or as an end to in themselves, can be misleading. The objective test must be applied. You see, no religious experience is valid if it does not have some way of testing it, objectively testing it. And so that leads me to my second point tonight, is how do people really know that they know God? Can, how can we, looking at this particular passage, leave the study tonight and say, yes, well, you know what, I'm confused, I don't think I really know God. 
or I don't believe I really know God. But 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 I'm hoping I'm hoping that that each one of us can can confidently say I I, I measure up to the objective test that John is unfolding. So I think I've made the point. Every one of us must put our professed faith to the test. And throughout this book, John is going to be repeating again and again that there are some reliable tests. And these tests do need to be applied. They must be applied to all who claim to be Christians. And, 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 and they're more reliable. They're more reliable than the, the subjective uh, perception because they're objective. Uh, you can measure yourself up against them and, 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 and therefore reach a conclusion. Well, the specific test, we're only going to be looking at one test tonight. The one that uh, John has in view here tonight, identified by uh, theologian and author John Stott as moral obedience. Moral obedience. Again, let me read verse 4. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Well, my point, next point is that I want to consider this godly lifestyle Explain what what is this test all about? You see this this test, and there are going to be other tests, at least another two tests that we're going to be look at, be looking at. The one uh, uh, identified as a relational test, and the third test will be a doc, a doctrinal test. So there's definitely value in understanding, but 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 the, these tests applied will answer the important question about assurance of faith, about your personal, my personal assurance of knowing God, sure that you are indeed a true Christian. And The first thing that we are considering in this test, or the thing that we are considering in this first test, this moral obedience test, that in some measure, it, it must be true of every believer, those who claim to know God, there must be a measure of righteousness. True believers submit to and obey the commands of God. Anyone, says John, who claims to know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It's a challenging question. There is something drastically wrong with anybody's profession of faith if it cannot be supported by accompanying evidence. The walk needs to reflect the talk in some measure. None of us is perfect. We already dealt with that last week. The essential evidence that you can look for, that I need to be looking for in my own life, is a godly lifestyle. Every single believer, not just what some people would say, oh, well, he's a fanatic, so therefore we can expect it from him or we can expect it from her. No, every single believer, from the time of conversion, there is a movement towards a godliness, a righteousness, a turning more to the likeness, the moral likeness um, of God. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? It's only when you obey him that you really can claim to know him. It's not just the matter of having accurate information about God, but it's very important that we become personally acquainted with him. And so Christianity has informational content 
But at the heart and the core, remember a study we did, I think it was the first study we did in John, at the heart and core of Christianity is the person, the person of Jesus Christ. He who reveals God the Father in all his holy and majestic glory. And so let's a sample passage from the Old Testament, Jeremiah uh, 9, verse 23. He says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let, let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Now, what, what, what is he going to lead to about knowing God? That I am the Lord... And this, then he goes on to describe some of the things he does. He exercises kindness and justice and righteousness. He does so on earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. And so our knowing of God has within the core of it our delighting in God and us therefore wanting to delight in the things that he delights in. It, 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 it's like a husband and a wife. We, we, we know each other. We, we love each other. And, and so we delight in, in what the other delights in. And so we ought to be imitating him, that is God, in what he does, in exercising kindness and justice and, and, and righteousness. The Apostle Paul, this is not just an isolated teaching. The Apostle Paul addressed the need for the professors or the professions of knowing God to be accompanied by moral obedience. The profession must have the supporting evidence. And he does so, and he does so very strongly. And I'll give you the, 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 the example in the book of Titus, chapter 1 and verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. The walk does not match the talk. They deny him. They don't know him. They are detestable and disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. And so knowledge about God cannot therefore be isolated. Our knowledge of God cannot be isolated from moral and ethical actions and conduct. Now I do need to, to add a note here. This certainly is not introducing, and I'm certainly not commending, uh, legalism. Uh, legalism is, is something different. It's when people are uh, under an obligation, a burdensome obligation, uh, to do certain things because they think by doing certain things they somehow are going to earn credit uh, with God and, and, and please Him. Uh, this is not what John is speaking about. John is speaking about those who come to know God through a conversion, through the work of the Spirit, with a change of heart, a heart that, that doesn't now obey under burdensome obligation, but a heart that delights in wanting to please God. And if I could just quote, and I'm jumping ahead of myself in the book, 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, But if anyone obeys his word, God's love, is truly made complete in him. See what he's saying here? The love of God coming into the life, experienced by the individual that has become a true believer, that really knows God, and so therefore the, the, the desire to, to reciprocate in that relationship of, of love. If a man loves God, 
You will seek to please him and keep his commandments. And, and so a growing love for God, in other words, being made complete or being perfected, will result in growing obedience to God. And so as we grow as Christians, we learn and we've, yes, we fail, but we have an advocate and we get up, he picks us up and, and he represents us and, and we keep growing and, and we keep growing and we keep growing and, and we should be growing in our obedience and submission in conforming to him. And so love and obedience are inseparable. John chapter 14, the gospel of John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. So true love for God is therefore not primarily expressed in just sentimental language. That's the sentimentalism that I was uh, trying to, to point out as a great danger. And, and, and true love for God is not even expressed in the mystical experience of the gooey gut but in the objectivity of moral obedience. What does your life look like from day to day? But there's another point that I'm wanting to make. So not only uh, looking at the, the godly, what, was, what, uh, what did I call the, the godly lifestyle or the godly test explained, I want to now look at the godly lifestyle test applied. How do we apply this? We claim to be a Christian, and 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 we we really believe that, and we then we want, and we can have assurance of salvation if we successfully apply the moral test or the the test of moral obedience. And so again, jumping a little ahead in the passage, we do have a specific example that we can compare ourselves to. Now remember we're talking about objectivity. There's, there's the entire word of God, but there is also the person of Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Becomes a, a governing reality that our lives conform and align with his life. And so the application of the test takes us beyond just the mere obedience of commands. Uh, Thou shalt not kill. Yes, that's, that's an important command. But actually to be more and more like Jesus. The more you're in fellowship with the Father, more in fellowship with the Son, the fellowship will show itself in likeness to Jesus in the way that you live the hidden resources, and, and it's not the topic of tonight's study, but just to mention, Jesus lived by faith when he was on this earth. Jesus lived by the impulse of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He lived by contact and communion, uh, union with the Father, hearing the Father's voice. And so do we, should not forget the work of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit producing in you and in me, a resemblance to Jesus. And so to walk as Jesus walked is to live, not by the rules, legalism, but by example. It is to follow him, to be his disciple. It's a personal relationship, uh, active and, and costly. 
And so the application for each one professing to be a Christian, and, and, and again, I thought I'd end the study tonight uh, just mentioning some aspects that we can easily examine and ask ourselves. Uh, does your life, does my life line up with the life of Jesus? Are you walking as Jesus walked? And, and let's give some examples. Did Jesus misrepresent others? No. Did Jesus show unkindness or malice toward others? Unforgiveness or bitterness? No. Did Jesus secretly give into the temptations of greed and lust and pride? Did Jesus always submit to you and obey the Father, even when it was difficult? Not my will, but your will be done. Did Jesus pay his taxes? Yes, he did. Was Jesus dishonest? No. Was Jesus servant-like in his relationship to others? Yes. Was Jesus generous in meeting the needs of others? Was Jesus disciplined in his devotional life with his Father? Was Jesus willing to go against the flow of popular opinion? huge challenge and 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 know for myself as i go through this list i go back to 1 john chapter 2 my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin i do so want to be like jesus but if anyone does sin yes we we sin i sin and you sin but we don't live in the gutter we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous one but I do need to ask, and, and uh, the challenge as we began this evening is the object test of moral obedience. Asking God to search your life, reaching a conclusion, do you pass the test? And Lord, thank you for grace. And Lord, I would be the first, I want to be the first to acknowledge, Lord, my own sinfulness and failing, falling short of your glory again and again. But thank you for your salvation, so rich and, and so free. Thank you for the new heart that you give us, removing that heart of stone and giving us the desire to, to love you and to want to please you. And I pray that that would grow. And, and Lord, even in the assessment of this study tonight, Give us, uh, Lord, assurance, uh, conforming, aligning and saying, yes, there is change. There is alignment with who Jesus is and how he lived. And so be with us. Help us each one in this journey as we grow, as we learn, as we fall, Lord, that you lift us up and that you continue to be with us. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is the, the final slide, just as we conclude, just a couple of discussion questions. And uh, I hope those will be of some value in engaging uh, with others if you are uh, meeting in a group tonight. So God bless you and uh, may his gracious hand of mercy be upon you uh, this week. And I think as the benediction concludes now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.